Hi everybody and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co-hosts, father and son duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us and we know our wide variety of world-class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Today, we welcome Peter Ramage onto the Golders podcast. Pete is an ex-professional footballer and played in the Premier League for several different teams, including his boyhood club, Newcastle United. After retiring from playing, Pete went into coaching. His first role was as the assistant coach at Phoenix Rising in America, and he has recently took a role back at Newcastle United as the under-23s assistant coach. Hiya, Pete. And uh, welcome, and thank you again for being with us. Pleasure to be on. Thanks for having us. Hi, absolute pleasure. Now, before we dive into a, a conversation, tell us what it was like, or tell us what it is like being back at Newcastle, where you're now part of the coaching staff. Yeah, um, it's, been, um, it's been a whirlwind few weeks. Um, Obviously, we were talking a couple of couple of weeks ago when I was in uh, a much warmer climate, um, you know, about hopefully being there long term and things like that. And not long after I put the phone down to you guys, I was uh, I was on a plane back to Newcastle, and that's as quickly as it happened. Really, it was um, something that came up totally out of the blue, um, an opportunity that I've always wanted uh, to, you know, work back at the club that I came through uh, the system at and um, at a level. Where I'm, uh, I'm hopefully going to have an input in, uh, and hopefully giving guys a, a start in their career uh, to be professional footballers. So it's, um, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a whirlwind couple of weeks tr- trying to settle back into uh, to Bonnie Newcastle, um, but enjoying it and then already enjoying the challenge that it's uh, the new job's given me. Great. When you you first started playing at, at uh, Newcastle so so many years ago share with us what your formative years were like prior to actually becoming a professional footballer yeah I grew up in a, a little town north of Newcastle just south of the border of uh, Berwick-upon-Tweed kind of a little sleepy town which has I think changed hands between England and Scotland for 13 times or something like that there was a there's actually a little article written about it the other day which um which made me chuckle a little bit rolling back in history but yeah I grew up in Berwick just played football as as every kid does morning, noon, and night, and uh, managed to get picked up by Newcastle when I was eleven year old, and spent uh, spent a year uh, up and down the roads, going on uh, going on trial, and eventually signing kind of school of excellence forms, and then we moved down to to Whitley Bay when I was thirteen, uh, and that was kind of when I signed officially and left kind of boys club football and became. Uh, I suppose you can call in Newcastle United Academy player or School of Excellence player that was back in the time and yeah just progressed through the ranks all the way through from under 13 through to under 17 under 19s as it was back then through the reserve team and then into the first team and uh, made my debut when I was uh, 21 year old so it's uh, it was a long journey uh, a lot of bumpy roads but one that ultimately got me to uh, to where I wanted to be and where I dreamed of getting to now, I've got to ask this question. On that journey of playing football, were there any other sports that have actually helped to provide you with a, a more varied background and that helped you to, to have a successful career in playing football? Yeah, I mean, I was a huge sports person. Um, I was a jack of all trades, to be honest with you. I, when the summer months rolled around, I was playing tennis or cricket or golf and the winter months going growing up in I grew up in a rugby family. My dad's a, a was a, an international rugby referee. He'd been at World Cups, done Six Nation games, um, Heineken Cup games, yeah, trying you name it, my dad refed in it. So whilst I enjoyed watching rugby and enjoyed playing it, football was always what I wanted to be. But you know, being and particularly being privy to the, the rugby world helped me massively. Uh, the culture that rugby has is is one that I've tried to uh, to implement because I think you know to to quote the all blacks you know better 
better men make, make better uh, better All Blacks, and it's uh, it's kind of what I what I love to see uh, in in a sporting environment, which you know helped me with uh, with growing up and, and coming through the ranks. That to be a to be a top top player, you also have to be a top person. So being in and around the rugby world was uh, was a real real eye opener. You know the the please and thank yous, uh, you know yes and no's, and the way they respected officials as well. Whilst I was quite a gobby so-and-so on the pitch, uh, I always like to think I had the respect of, of the ref and said it in the right tone just because I seen what my dad was going through on a daily basis or weekly basis. But it was, um, it, was really, uh, it was really helpful in me and I'm so privileged to have had that opportunity to, to mix in, uh, in such a sporting world like that. And you mentioned the other sports, so rugby, you mentioned your tennis, your cricket. With all that being said, did you ever, as a young boy, dream of becoming a professional footballer or was it just something that you, you played? No, well, something I played, yeah, but it was always... It, I, I never wanted to be a professional golfer. I never wanted to be a professional tennis player or rugby player or cricketer. All I wanted to be was a professional footballer. I think when you grow up, in particularly these parts of the world, it's, uh, you only ever want to play for Newcastle United. You only ever want to play for England. You only ever want to play football. And I was no different to all my friends who I played with in the, in the playground or on the school field or, you know, even going into the academy. All we ever wanted to do was just be footballers. And, you know, whilst I love playing the other, the other sports, and I still do now, love my golf, love playing cricket in uh, the odd game of cricket in the summer. I love watching tennis, but I still want to just kick a football around. Even with my nephew now, my 11-year-old nephew, I just want to play football with him. And... Now, that was the same for me as a seven-year-old growing up to now being, you know, nearly 37 myself. It's, it's still have the same drive to just to play football. And yeah, it was, uh, it was, I, I did well at school. My mum and dad weren't strict, but they were very prudent with me in that they, they made sure that I did well in school because as you, as you well know, David, I mean, it's just one tackle can end your career and you've got to try and start something else. Um, so they made sure that I've got straight A's uh, in all my classes, which I did. And they tried unsuccessfully to further my education when I went into the, uh, into the academy system. Um, wasn't for the want to try and from both Newcastle as well as my mum and dad. Um, and I was quite, um, quite keen on taking a, a different course to the one that was offered to us. But to be honest with you, when it started to become evident that I was going to I was going to make some sort of a living in this game, my full, my full and 100% focus was on uh, trying to better myself as a footballer. Mm. So i got a question for you regarding that then, because we'll touch on it. Newcastle fan, you walked out, made your debut at St. James's in front of the Toon Army. What qualities, in your opinion, got you to play at that level from being a young kid that dreamed of being a professional footballer? What was it that, that carried you so far? Um, well, ability, I think, is first and foremost, I had the ability to be able to perform. Outside of that, I think I just had the determination. I was never, I was never earmarked as the, the next top star to come through the academy. There was other players before me um, and in my age group who were, were far better footballers than me, to be brutally honest with you. But I just had this drive and determination to, to want it probably more than them. You know, we... We were young, we were in your castle. It's, um, there's quite a few distractions in this part of the world as well, uh, you know, off the field. But I was very driven. I was very professional in that. Uh, I knew that I couldn't, I couldn't slip up, if that makes sense. Uh, I had to have a 100% focus on trying to become a footballer. Yeah, I enjoyed, my, I enjoyed off the field. We'd go out for a, for a drink, have a night out, but only, only when the time was right. And I think that got me quite far in my career. Not only got me the start of my career, but took me on, um, or I did quite, you know, into my career, and I think you know that helped me certainly in my formative years in, in the in the academy and reserves to to opportunity to train, firstly to train with the first team, and then my ability to go over that I was able to handle myself. You know, there was a, it's a different world. It was a different world back then, coming through the uh, through the ranks than it is now, and that's for sure. And uh, you know, I was strong enough mentally to be able to to block out all the, uh, the hoo-ha that was going on around and, and, and kind of hold my own in that environment. And you, look, you played in the Premier League from 2004, 2008, 
with Newcastle. He also played for QPR in the Premier League. We talked about what or what helped you get to that level and, and maintain it over a long period of time. There's an eight-year span of, of uh, in terms of a time span there where you'd, you've played at a very high level and continue to do so afterwards. But who were the three best players that you played against and what was it about them that made them so special? Uh, played against, God, it's a good question. There were so many. I mean... First and foremost, well, firstly, I made my debut against Ryan Giggs. Uh, I made my Premier League debut against Ryan Giggs. And what an unbelievable talent. I mean, for me, it's hard to find a better player that's played in the Premier League just because he was able to do it from 17 all the way through to his 40s. I mean, you don't do that without being a hell of a player. So even from the, from the outset, I played against probably, like I said, one of the best, the Premier League's best. Just had a, an incredible way with it to, to use the football and uh, and do some unbelievable things as, as we all seen throughout his career. I was one of my biggest fans and I only played against him once. Uh, sorry, one of the people I was biggest fan of was Paul Scholes. Uh, I just thought he was just, he could just dictate a game on his own. You know, it's for somebody so small, uh, he could just have a way to, to be the, the biggest player on the pitch. I just think he was, he was just a special talent. And I think he was, uh, for me, probably the best midfield player and, and suffered that I don't think there was a good enough uh, tactical nerves around him uh, in them days that basically, the England, for me, the England team should have been built around him uh, and not him fitting into, just because he was one of, the, one of many stars, I think. You know, you, you talk about trying to fit him, schools, uh, him, Lampard, sorry, Gerard into a team. I think they should have been built around schools, and uh, I think you know, tactical knowledge back then wasn't. I think he would have probably been better suited for now than he was back then. It was basically four four two every team. You know, Mourinho kind of changed the norm back in two thousand and four when he came over. I think he would have been. Mourinho took over England and found a way of getting them three in the middle of the park. I think. England would have went on and won many, many major trophies. But, um, yeah, he was just an unbelievable talent. And the last, and I probably have to say this because he paid my wages for a couple of years, but it was Didier Drogba. I think Didier was uh, probably one of the most complete centre-forwards I've ever seen in my time. Uh, you try to go rough with him and he could handle himself and give you some more. Uh, you stood off him, he could turn, he could beat you with a trick, he could shoot from all angles. He tried to get tight to him. He could spin you in behind. He had explosive pace. He could finish with both feet and he could finish with his head. He just, for me, was probably as close to the complete centre forward as you could get. And yeah, he was probably one, of the, probably one of the toughest guys I've ever come across. And he, hasn't forget, he hadn't let me forget the time when he came on and when I was playing in the Premier League, uh, the, the, the FA Cup, and he scored the winner as well. So, got that one from Dids as well. So, Pete, you, you played just on 300 and, over 330 games in total in your playing career. And you've obviously come across a lot of players, both playing against and playing with. So, out of that, out of the time that you played, you played at Newcastle, you played at QPR, Crystal Palace, Birmingham, Barnsley, you went over and did a stint abroad. And then finally finished your, your playing career in, in, in America at Phoenix. Who are the best players you've ever played with? Um, there's three that stick to mind. One, the first guy, probably the, probably the best player I've ever played with in terms of technician was Nobby Solano, uh, the Peruvian right winger. Um, I came through as a centre-back, but started my playing career at right-back. So I didn't really know the position. Um, it was a lot different to playing centre-back. I do a lot more running. And I had to do a lot more running when Nobby in front of us because he couldn't run. But you give him the ball and he would find, like scores, you could hit it on a sixpence from 40, 50, 60, 70. However, you could tell Nobby to hit something, he would have hit it from any distance. He was just an absolute magical footballer to play with. And for me, as well as being a magical footballer, he was just such a great guy. Obviously, being a young lad coming into the Premier League, it's such a 
a tough time that we were having at Newcastle at the time. He was he was just incredible with me. He would take me after training and you know, we'd work on little situations, um, in particular crossing. Because again, being a centre back, never crossed a ball in my life. So and Nobby was one of the best. Um, so he'd take me for extra training. Uh, and he just worked with me. And he loved the barbecue and he loved the beer and you know, we sometimes spend some time around it is and he was just a great person to play with, you know, go back to what I talked about, you know, uh, like the All Blacks, say better men, big better All Blacks, he certainly was one of them that would fit into that category. The other one, I have to say this, being a Geordie, but Alan Shearer, uh, I got him at the tail end of his career, but working with Nobby, it, it was just all Nobby would say is put the ball in the box and I'll get on the end of it. No matter where it is, he'll get on the end of it. And he did. He was, uh, I mean, he was a force to be reckoned with in his pomp. I mean, he's the Premier League's top goal scorer and, uh, and he missed two or three seasons through serious injury. And he also was a, a great support for me when I had a, a serious injury, when I tore my cruciate. He'd been there, done that, seen it. So he was the first on the phone to offer me advice, offer me support. He just he just not long retired. I think he two years retired. So I hadn't seen him for a couple of years, but he was the first one, one of the first ones on the phone to to offer his support. But as a player, yeah, he was he was something special. And like I said, I played with him at the tail end of his career, so I don't imagine what he was like, you know, when he was in his pomp. And third, a guy who I still regard as probably the best captain I ever played played under would be Mile Jednak at, at Crystal Palace. Mile was. Judge, jury, and executioner in the uh, in the dressing room. Everything went through him. He ruled with an iron fist, but in a in a in a way where he led by example, both on and off the field. Um, probably one of the best trainers I've ever come across. Uh, looked after his body, looked after himself, and uh, made sure when it came on a Saturday he was best prepared. And and more often than not, because of that preparation that he did, he was the best player on the park and certainly, like I said, probably one of the best uh, best captains I've ever come across. You mentioned three players there. I'm, I'm interested in just pursuing the Alan Shearer route a little bit more and delving into... You've obviously trained against him as well in practice. Yeah. What was he like? Because you're six foot one, Alan, five foot eleven-ish. Six yeah, yeah, yeah. That was it. Uh, he was, made him he was so special. He was played like he was six foot eight. He just, he just had an unbelievable leap about him. You couldn't get around him because he was so strong. Probably the biggest set of thighs I've ever seen on a man. Uh, they were like tree trunks. So trying to get around him, you'd have to. So like trying to chop down the Amazon. To be honest with you, it was, uh, it was hard to get around. But he was, he, um, he hated you taking it lightly with him. I remember one on one occasion, not long after I kind of started with the first team, uh, a cross came in. Uh, it was in a five-a-side, like a normal Friday, like five-a-side game. And I just let him score. And he basically stopped and absolutely berated me in front of everybody. And I, 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 don't, think, I don't think I had a, such a, a rollicking off a manager like I had off Al that day. It was like, I, if I'm going to go into war tomorrow... I need to be prepared. You stand off me and I'll be the last thing you ever do. And I, I, I soon learned a harsh lesson. He wanted to train like, he wanted me to kick lumps out of him. He wanted me to, be, you know, put my elbows into his back or into his face or because he was going to get that off Marcel Desai or Nemanja Vidic or Rio Fernand or John Terry on the Saturday. So he needed to be prepared for that. And um, he made damn sure that I was, uh, that I learned a lesson that day. And, and, I, and I did. You know, it was it was a it was a harsh lesson for me. I was embarrassed, but I, I just didn't want to. I didn't want to injure the star man. You know, going into the next with the game the next day. But to his point, I probably he would probably get injured more with somebody going half heartedly into him than he would full blown because he was prepared and ready for that contact. Um, so it was a. But straight after training, yeah, he, you know, he he made that point during the He was the first one to come up to me and. Um, and explain his reasons why. And I always remember it. We went and sat and had a coffee in the in the canteen, and he was he just explained what was expected, what he expected of me as a young player, um, but also as his teammate. Um, I wasn't just a young boy at the time. I was actually in the first team squad, so or in the training with the first team. So was, I'm treating you like a first team player. So it was he, he had that harshness, but then he also had the the leadership 
and the kind of the educational side of him, which made him made him one of the greatest for me. Plus, I took a lot of money off him playing golf, so I, you know I, I, that's where I got him back. Listen, I wasn't going to mention uh, April twenty fourth, two thousand and five, yeah. the fixture between Man United <laughs> and Newcastle. But, but listen, I have to. <laughs> so, what, what memories does that date evoke not, in your brain, Yeah, no, nothing other than it was just my Premier League debut at Old Trafford. <laughs> nothing happened in the game. We got beat two one. That was a game set match. Unlucky, got back on the coach. Nothing to talk about. <laughs> no, I'm going to have to close this one out. <laughs> no, I was. I mean, that was a, so that was the thing. We'd actually, we'd suffered with a bit of an injury crisis in the, in the week leading up to it. And I wasn't sure if I was going to play on that. I was in and out of the team uh, in like the shape work. And then it was the day before Graham Souness was the manager and just pulled us. We played on the Sunday. This was on the Saturday morning. said, listen, you're starting. Get yourself, uh, get yourself ready. So I got myself ready. Obviously, the game went on. I was walking along. I star-studded little kid. Uh, I star-struck a little kid, sorry. Gary Neville's hand, one of my heroes. Like, walking past Ryan Giggs, you know, all these players, all these superstars at Man United. And like I said, we were on a, we were in a height and nothing, expecting to get absolutely battered. Uh, I think Stephen Carr, the right-back, who was at Tottenham, played in centre midfield player, that day we were, uh, we were that decimated. And yeah, we went 1-0 up, Darren Ambrose scored. And then uh, certain Mr Rooney got irate with a referee. Can't think, can't remember who played a long ball. I think it was Alan Smith played a long ball. I've gone and headed it, thinking I've done my job. And that, that irate Mr Rooney, who was, uh, who was arguing with the referee, just kicked six bags of shit out of this ball and it's flew in the top corner. And uh, I'm sitting there thinking... Should have just headed that out, really, shouldn't I? Not back in the field. Let's now learn a harsh lesson. You know, one mistake and it ends up in a goal. That's the difference between the level I was at the week before playing in reserve team football to the first team. You know, you the header was a crap header. You know, I, I've headed it. I mean, I was playing again. I was playing, well, inside me was, uh, was John Allen Boomsong, who had a 50 pence head at the best of times. So he would have probably headed it in there as well. But I just tried to take command of the situation. Headed it back in towards the middle of the field, and yeah, we really came on and scored that volley. And uh, I still, to this day, I mean, Shea makes it look even better because he dives for it. He was going to get absolutely nowhere near it, and I don't think if you dive for it, it would have got such the attention that it did. But he made it look even better than it probably was. But like I said, it was uh, it was one hell of a goal. It's repeated time upon time. I think it's a claim to fame that I've got that I've got an assist on on match of the day's goal of the season. So. A nice little one for us. Uh, but I, listen, like I said, I'm, it's a learning curve. It was a great learning curve for us. That's for damn sure. And we only we got beat two one in the game. I did well. You know, we we got beat to a West Brown last minute winner. Um, so it was uh, it was a it was not a bad uh, not a bad day for us. What was mentioned after? Did you get a, did you get a slating off the lads? No, or? I didn't. No, I didn't. I don't think we'd really taken in how good the goal was. I don't really think anybody knew it was my header that gone back in field. But no, listen, it was it was just to what I said before. Graham Souness was absolutely unbelievable with this. He just said, "No, that is the difference between reserve team and first team." The guys volleyed it in from 25, 30 yards, and I think if you handed it well. To fair, Wayne really could probably put that in nine times out of ten, but anybody else in the field, I think it would have been in row 90, you know what I mean? So uh, it just felt the one player on the field he didn't want him to fall to. But that's what Graham Sooner said is that, you know, it does. It's That's a harsh reality of Premier League football. We had a game on the Wednesday night against Middlesbrough at home, Time Tees Derby, and he said, You've made a mistake, it's cost us a goal, but your performance outside of that was. Good enough for me to keep you in the team for the next for the next game, and he showed confidence in me going into the uh, the season after. I played quite a lot of games under him, and whilst he didn't, unfortunately for him, didn't have the greatest time as a as a manager in Newcastle United, he certainly uh, left a, a lasting impression on me for for the way that he uh, he helped me give me my foot in the door into Premier League football. You talk about that the goals for the header key role and or pivotal part of a centre-back's game. However, it is changing and it has been changing, yeah. um, especially, yeah. especially over probably the last 15, 20 years or so. But in your opinion, what are the differences 
between the modern day centre back now to when you were playing, and especially in your early, earlier days when you were making your debut? Yeah, I think you you've seen them back in them days, and even before that, you the centre back was just a, a head on a stick. That's all his job was, just to head it and kick it. Now, centre backs are the first first form of attack, and and and, and as our goalkeepers. You see him with the likes of Edison, uh, Allison, and particularly uh, Edison being brought in. And I think, still to this day, people might question what I'm about to say, but I don't think Joe Hart was that bad a footballer with the ball at his feet. And I think, you know, he was harshly treated, but it's what Pep Guardiola wanted. And he's been proven right in bringing in a guy who can spray a ball over any amount um, of distance and I think that goes along with centre-backs you know he's why he brought John Stones in why he's got Eric Laporta in you know players now centre-backs in particular nowadays have to be good footballers have to be able to handle the ball under pressure and probably one of the most severe places to handle it because like I found out you make a mistake in the Premier League and that final third it invariably ends up in a goal so you have to have players who now will be able to handle the football just like a midfield player or a wide player or a centre-forward kind of. I still think there's a necessity to be able to, to head it and kick it. Your job, first and foremost, is to keep clean sheets. And yes, while you are the first form of form of the attack, you are the last line of defence as well. And I think you have to be able to to be able to defend um, and have them old school uh, old school values of you know being able to put your foot in where it hurts or your head in where it hurts. Sorry, um, something I think is it's creeping a little bit back in. You know, you're starting to see kind of the hybrid defenders who are able to do both. But then very like Man City have just proven are the ones that cost, you know, world record fees for, for defenders. And to get them, you have to be special talents, both with and without the ball. So from a, an asp- uh, from a standpoint of the game itself, from when you played, how has it evolved? Uh, it's a lot more technical. I think we're seeing... You know, I referred to it before, you know, when I was talking about scores in that midfield, back back when I was coming through, and invariably it was 4-4-2. Uh, and the majority, if not most of the teams, played that formation. Nowadays it's changed. You're getting different different games are now adopting a 3-5-2 or 5-3-2, however you want to look at it. You know, he's, he changed his style to be able to get a result in the game. And, and that really wasn't seen back then. And you have different players that are able to play in different formations where back then, kind of players, in my opinion, were just kind of pigeonholed into one formation. Um, So I think the modern day footballer now has to be a lot more versatile in many ways. I think this enables them to, the football to be a little bit more expansive in terms of you don't don't really see the kind of direct style of football that that I kind of grew up in, get to the centre forward and play from there. You know, it's now building through the thirds or building through the quarters, whichever you know, whichever style your, the club looks at. But it is changed, it has evolved. It's a lot different, to, like I said, when I played, but it's a lot more catching and easy on the eye now to watch You know, the Man Cities, the Barca's, the Liverpool's play play their way through teams and just over and above them. Where is it going from here? It's a good question. I don't know. It's, uh, this is where I'm really interested to see how in particularly Man City do this season. Obviously, Pep Guardiola is uh, synonymous with one kind of style of football, kind of the tiki-taka football, so to speak. And um, Liverpool came in with a new high-press, high-intensity uh, style that just blew the Premier League away and has done for the last couple of years. I mean, the year before, the one that they've obviously just won the Premier League. I mean, to get 90, what was it, 98, 99 points and not win the league, it's just... It's like, it's ridiculous. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see if they're able to progress and, uh, and build upon what they did last season. Who knows? You know, like I said, you've seen Leicester found a way to get past Man City. I, uh, I don't know. Uh, to answer the question, I don't know where it's going to go. It's, it's going to be great to, to sit and try and study and learn and see how it does evolve. But I think teams now are coming in with different styles and different formations and different philosophies. It's, it's hard to see if they're all going to, you know, keep going like Spaghetti Junction. All they're all going to align in one, in one way. Just changing tack slightly, Pete. You, you finished playing in two thousand in the two thousand sixteen seventeen season. 
did you start to show interest in coaching while she was still playing? Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. I was. Uh, I began my badges when I was early, early in my career. Obviously, coming through the academy system, you do your level one, your level two as part of your educational program, and I got a real thirst for it even back then when I was, I was eighteen year old when we started that. Obviously, once the first team football started to take, uh, take control, you know, your time spent away from the field. I still had a passion for, for it. And when I went to QPR at 24, 20, 25, I tore, my, uh, I tore my cruciate and I thought it was an opportunity for me with nine months, ten months out of the game to, to do something with it. Um, and yeah, I, I began my B licence. Uh, and again, working with, with Mark Bircham and, uh, and Steve Gallen at, uh, at QPR, I got a real, I had a real drive to, to, to want to become a coach and was sitting taking notes, writing down sessions, trying to learn how you put a session together. It wasn't just simple as going out, doing a couple of boxes, going across and shooting and finishing with a game. There's actually some I didn't realise there was a thought process behind it all. So that was uh, that was edu- that was an education. And then, you know, I finished my B licence, they will testify, I just wanted to get straight onto my A licence as well. Uh, and I did that. Uh, so I got my A licence by the time I was twenty eight. Uh, and that was the time when I went to Barnsley. Uh, and I was on my own at Barnsley for a for a, a period of time. So my wife and kids were up in Newcastle. So then my nights were spent uh, down at the academy, just joining in, watching sessions, learning from the coaches there. Um, it was uh, it was brilliant, and I and I really enjoyed it. Started to take a few sessions. wasn't Still wasn't sure if I wanted to be a coach. If that makes sense because I never actually coached. I was just watching it, like watching sessions. So I didn't know if it, once I got you know down and dirty whether it was actually something I wanted to do. But after the first couple of sessions, it was definitely uh, something that you know once my playing career finished, I was going to want to uh, going to want to do. So twenty eight, you get your air license, and you're now applying your trade full time at Newcastle, working with the under twenty threes. Share with us what a typical week looks like for you. Yeah, the typical week starts the week before. Um, we have a curriculum that we've got to um, that we've got to follow. So we'll sit down and uh, I mean we have the four moments of the game uh, where we look at you know the loss of possession, in possession, regain of possession, and uh, out of possession. So we've got to hit them four moments throughout the week, trying to hit as many parts of the field too. So we'll sit and we'll try and plan and prepare uh, our weekly sessions um, based on the curriculum even though we're under 23s and we're playing somewhat men's football, we still have a, an educational side to, to our session. So that'll begin the week before. And then, yeah, depending on our games, generally fall either Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday or Monday. So depending on them, we'll work on, you know, I think we normally have a three-day lead into a game. You know, so depending on what we, on what we decide to do. We'll kind of build up the week to that. We have a we have our own kind of physical periodization as well. So we've got to we've got to follow the the minutes from the the sports science department to make sure that they're ready and prepared for for games. Uh, obviously, at this moment in time, with everything going on in the world, it's it's a little bit more challenging to to get that diet side of things because guys can't get in the gym and do their uh, you know do their S and C uh, programs. It obviously supplements the the technical and tactical side of things, but. You know, we try and incorporate as many moments of the game as we can in, during the week. But the, the day that the guys really look forward to is obviously match day minus one, where it's fun, five asides, call it our in possession. It's mainly our in possession day because the guys just, just play uh, and have fun. So uh, that's the day where we basically just sit with our deck chairs and, uh, and enjoy, enjoy the show. So you've, you're planning a week in advance. So next week's already been pretty much planned. Yeah, yeah. And can yeah. that is that subject to change depending yeah. upon personnel? Um, oh, good question. Yes and no. Um, it's more subject to change to to what maybe happened in the game. There might be a moment where you know, in the previous game where we you know we maybe need to focus, and we've just played a game at uh, a crew in the checker train. We got beat one nil. Uh, and we played really, really well against a very, very good team. But we just weren't clinical enough in the final third at the key moments of the time. Uh, and that's not just the actual finishing of chances. It's you know, that final pass, that final decision to, to lead to a chance. So, you know, next week is going to be quite a lot of uh, in-possession stuff and 
uh, regains a possession where you know you, what you do in the final third. So it's that's where it kind of changes. Excuse me. I mean, personnel. You can plan to have a certain amount of players, but then all of a sudden you'll get a phone call from the first team manager saying he needs three players. So all of a sudden you had a, a perfect 11 v 11. Now you're down to you know 18, 19, or 17 or 16 players. Some days you'll get a phone call saying right, we need half a dozen players. We need more, and you're left with four or five. So you'll try, but we'll with whatever numbers we have, we'll try and adapt the session that will still follow the curriculum. And like I said, sometimes just the uh, the moment that we that we look at might change. What are the key qualities that you're learning or that you think are important in this role, given what you've just said? Oh, that's a tough question. You need to you need to have patience with these guys. You need to have understanding. So it's more the um, you know you have the four corner model, uh, the tech tech, the psychological, the physical, and the uh, the social side. I think in this role. You kind of need to have like the, the psychological and social side of things because you need to understand what the player's going through. He might have his agent in his ear saying, I've got X, Y, and Z, they want to take you on loan. You know, maybe don't go hard in training today because if you get injured, that deal's gone. So you've got to have a lot of you gotta have a lot of patience with these guys and understand where they're at. You've also have got to have a lot of patience with them in terms of their the technical tactical side of things, you know, they're not they're not ready-made footballers. I'm finding that some of them think they are. Some of them think they should be playing first-team football, where in fact they still need a little bit more work on uh, on certain aspects of their game to to make sure that when they do go out, they're not like a fish out of water and rabbits in headlights. So they're actually ready to perform. So you know, a lot of planning and preparation goes into that side of things too, on 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 sending the players out if they are to go on loan to send them out to clubs where they're going to benefit and they're not going to be used in the wrong manner that's not going to be able to showcase them because the harsh reality of it, we have, you know, I think it's 16, 17 players at the under-23s, with all due respect, none of them, not many of them are going to make it into the first team, but we've got a, a care of duty to make sure that they have a, the tools that are going to able, enable them to have a, a career somewhere in the game. Uh, at whatever level that their ability takes them. Hopefully, you know, hopefully they do get into the first team. Hopefully we do have 16 and 17 in America, all of them going into the first team. But if they don't, we have to, like I said, we have to make sure that they have all the tools that are going to enable them to have a career just like I did. So in your playing career, you played under several different managers, uh, different coaches, obviously played with players as well that helped you along your way. How much has that has had an impact on you in helping now these young players ply their trade? And I guess another one is, as well as that, what qualities did you look for when you were playing? The biggest quality in a manager I looked for was honesty. I just wanted to be told, if, if I didn't perform well, just tell me. I was brought up to be able to take and handle criticism. In fact, I actually thrived more from that than, be, than being told that, that I'd played well. To be honest with you, I wanted to know what I'd need to improve on and not what I did, I did well. So from a manager, from my manager, I always asked that we're just upfront and honest with me. And I, 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 quite, I, I like to think that that's a quality that I'm going to take into my career as a coach. And I'm going to be able to be honest, but honest in a way that I can help you with it. You know, I came across some managers who were honest, but honest in a brutal way. That it was just the old-fashioned hairdryer treatment. Um, there was no actual constructive criticism behind it. So for me, I'm I'm, I'm learning that. Uh, I'm still learning that, and I don't know, I don't know how, I don't know how it's going to go. If that, if that makes sense, I've, there's, a, there's going to be a lot of mistakes I'm going to make in my career path. But um, I just want to try and be honest with players, but honest in a way that I'm going to help them. So that was probably, and that came, to be brutally honest with you, that came from Neil Warnick. He was probably one of the harshest managers that I ever came across. And he would give you a hairdryer treatment. But he had this way about him of taking to you. He would be still cheesed off with you. But he'd take you into the office and he'd be like, this is what I'm expecting from you. Or this is what you should have done. Or 
if he did this, you know, that might have led to that. And he had a way about him that, yeah, he was brutally honest with you and there was no coming back. So if you, uh, if you crossed him, there's no second chances. But he responded to players that were able to take his criticism and work on it and try and improve. Uh, and he helped, he helped with that process by just being a good man-manager. And, and whilst he wasn't the greatest of coaches, he was a good coach. That makes sense. Like he had a he had a way about him that could be able to to bring the best out of players. Pete, you've got lots of playing experiences, and you're building up a, a portfolio of experiences in in the coaching field now. What is it that you're most curious about in your current role? Oh, um, I'm curious about where these where these lads are going to end up. And that is what, that is my job to try and, like I said before, is to give them the, uh, give them the tools. So how do I do that? Like I said before, these guys are at different stages in their career. I've got, uh, for argument's sake, the other night, we had a 16-year-old coming into the squad and I had a 22-year-old who came on and is now the next day gone on loan. So it's trying to give and I'm curious how to how to get the best out of these players, how to best educate these players. Some are going to need different different methods of education. Some, you know, what I'm learning at this moment in time is some of them like to do the video analysis. Some of them don't. So I'm curious how my time is going to be spent in making sure that they get the right form of education. Is it going to be via video? Do you need it via the fields? So it, it, it's cute. I'm curious as to how I'm going to develop as a coach to make sure that each player that comes that I come across gets the best from me. And again, I'm going to make mistakes. We all make mistakes, and I've just got to try and make sure that I find that way with that player that's that's going to help them have a career. And, and that's what I'm curious as to as to where it's going to lead me. I've got a follow-on question from that. What will let you know when you have? I don't know. I really don't know because when that player maybe goes off to the first team, he's out and out of my hands. I've got the process to start again with a new player. So you've got to start all over again because what one player might find working might not with another, even in the same breath, you know, working on the field with one guy might have to be different than working on the field to another guy. You know, I'm, I was a centre-back. I can easily put on a defending session, but after some hour, I invariably have to put on a, a centre-forward session. So this is where I found with working with some of the guys is I actually just leave it up to them. Go on, then there's a bag of balls. How, how, what do you need to work on? How are you going to get the best out of you? And I leave it up to them. I try and watch and try and see what they're doing and then almost somewhat learn on the job to try and then maybe enhance what they're doing in terms of Okay, they're just they're just running through the they're just running through the middle of the goal and just putting the ball in the net. Right, okay, well, can I stick a couple of mannequins in the way? You know, what about if we you know, what about if we have to play a little one two? What about if you have it's just trying to to find ways um, to get the best out of these players and sometimes you have to leave them to to their own devices and sit back and just take a and just take a moment to to see what they're doing see what and, and get feedback from them and that's a big thing as well that I'm learning with this group because they're a different age groups and at different stages of their career it's great I, I I enjoy getting the feedback from the players as to what sessions work for them um, on an individual and on a group basis so it's for me I think a big a big key to to going it's going to be for my development is is actually taking that criticism as well from players who probably I'm giving them the tools to think that they know best, but I'm actually just giving them the tools to, to be honest with me, which is what I wanted from, from managers when I was playing. Do you feel that allows them the opportunity to connect with you at a slightly different level? Correct. So again, it comes back to the, the four corner module. So, I mean, uh, having the social aspect of things, building relationships with players, so then when it does come to maybe a moment in a game that we are playing that I can be sterner with them because we now have that kind of connection off the field. He feels he can trust me. I can trust that player and I can trust that maybe the 
constructive criticism I'm about to hand the player, he'll take it in the right manner and know that I'm giving them that criticism for him to then, right, well, can we go out and work on this on Monday morning? Or can we, you know, watch a film on, on Monday afternoon after training? So it's trying to give the players a little bit of, um, a little bit of trust. Uh, and I think that's key in this, again, key in this development stage as well, that players coming, I, I can't, they don't know whether they're coming or going sometimes. So if they have the trust of, of myself and Chris Hogger, who's the lead coach at, at the 23s, then we're on, we're on the right path to be able to give them these, uh, the opportunities to have a career. And dealing with players at these levels, which lots of them will be aiming to pursue professional career, long-term professional career in the Premier League or other leagues, uh, ultimately aiming to, they're at Newcastle, they want to be staying at Newcastle. But the, dealing with different cultures, Pete, I'm sure you've got them in the dressing room. Do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, you have to have empathy for, for every culture. You know, you can't, disregard it in one you can't disregard one to the other you've got to you've got to be able to find a way of of supporting them uh supporting what they what they where they come from uh, i had a, a qpr when i was there with adele tarat obviously he would go through ramadan so it was obviously a tough a tough period for him in, in regards that physically he wasn't at a hundred percent because of his his religious beliefs and what he was going through in, the, in that particular month. So we had to have, um, we had to have a lot of empathy for him and, uh, and support him and, uh, and making sure that he was, you know, whilst he was going through this, through that period that, you know, he had the support of us and, and same as a coach, you know, what we're finding as well with, with guys at this kind of age group, they're moving away from home into maybe an area of the, the world that they haven't got a clue and no support network. Um, so you have to make sure that, and we do, we have a really, really good um, backroom staff that give them the support to, to be able to, to leave the training ground, you know, leave the football field, but know that they're, uh, they're in the right hands, whether it be finding them apartments or getting them sorted with a bank, a bank card or a, or a mobile phone or you know, even simply just going to get them the shopping because they're kind of cooked, so you've got to go and get them the right food and, and make sure that they're getting fed and watered properly and, and things like that. So it's it's a lot. I mean, you guys will know as well as I do. It's there's a everybody's different. Nobody's the same. But you've got to make sure that, that each player gets the same kind of care and attention that, to make sure that when it comes to to match day and, and kick off time, that they're uh, they're in the right mental and physical state to perform. Ever come across players where you feel there isn't a connection with them? And getting the message out, getting the message across to them for the greater good of the team, but you've not been able to to have that association, being able to communicate to them at a level where they're going to understand it, or even if register. And if you have, I'm really honest, if I'm brutally honest with you, it's a it's a, nes, a yes and no to the answer. And I explain no in terms of I've not really had that quite. I haven't, I haven't experienced that yet as a, as a coach, personally. I, I like to think that I've got a good way with players that I understand what each player needs. Some, some of them don't. I don't need to be their best mates. I just need to be able to be their coach. But when I was at Phoenix, Rick, uh, Rick Chance, the head coach there, he was the head coach, so he couldn't have some... He had to, he had to pick an 11. Some guys didn't play, and some guys didn't play... One week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, uh, uh, and as we all know, you get. And when it comes to him trying to be, you know, telling you what you need to do, you know, the years, the years flap over and shut, and you don't listen. And one, what what words are said goes in one ear and out the other. So this is where you know, I like to think that the relationship that myself and Blair Gavin, who's the the other assistant there, that we had, we were able to then go to the, the player at that moment in time and be like, listen. We're not sure if he's making the right decision, but come on, you need to do more. So let's get a bag of balls. Let's go and do this. Let's go and do that. Or let's go and sit in front of a laptop. This is what we need to get you working on. You know, remember this. Remember that moment when you were playing. This is what you got to repeat day after day. So that's where I, I seen it. Kind of being the assistant that the head didn't have the relationship with the player. So this is where the me and like I said, me and Blair, the assistants, we kind of stepped in. So. But on a personal level, I mean, some of the players that I've coached might say, "Yeah, I can't stand Rami. He's a 
he's just a big jolly. I don't understand him. Can't be bothered to understand him. He's in my heart. He says he's in one. But from, I haven't experienced that quite yet. I'm sure I'm going to find it somewhere down the line. I'll find that player somewhere down the line. So maybe it's uh, it's like me and Chris talk about. It's, it's sometimes there's going to be a moment where there's a good cop and bad cop. And uh, that might be the moment when I'm the bad cop and he's the good cop. So final question for you. If you had any advice for the people listening on how to become a more effective coach, what would that advice consist of? Be open. And by that, I mean, understand that you don't know everything. You may think you do, but you don't. There's always somebody that's, uh, that's able to, to give you advice. And I think you've got to learn to, uh, to make mistakes. I'm, s- I'm sitting here with two guys who, have, who know the game well, but I don't think that we all, we all make mistakes and you've got to learn from them. But be, be brave enough to make them mistakes. You know, if there's a session that you, you're not quite sure if it's going to work, try it. Because if it does work, great, you found a new session. If it doesn't, well, what can I tweak? How can I make it work? Again, go and ask the players. That session didn't work, did it? What didn't work about it? So being open and honest and be, and being mindful that I do, you don't know everything. So be brave enough to take the, the criticism, but also be brave enough to try new things or be brave enough to, to go against the norm somewhat. Sometimes I think coaches just go with the tried and, chest, tried and tested sessions, which are great, but have a little bit of a, imagination to them and, and don't be scared to, to you know for them not to work we all become better I've certainly become better for more so for the mis- mistakes that I've made than the, uh, the achievements that I've did Pete listen thank you ever so much for creating the time to be with oh, us it was a pleasure to be here I would only have bedtime here for the kids so it would probably be either this or Peppa Pig and far other chat football <laughs> Well, 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 let's do it again then. <laughs> Same time tomorrow? Same time tomorrow. Yeah, listen, thanks very much, Pete, and no, good luck you on your coaching journey. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated. And it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>